Welcome to The Sugar Science, where our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, your host for today's podcast, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Gail McGill. Very interestingly, he is a faculty member at Harvard Medical School and the founder and CEO at Digizyme, Incorporated, a scientific visualization company. Welcome, Gail. Thank you for joining us from Boston. Thank you for having me. I wanted to start out with asking, what do you do and how do you do it? Sure. So we focus on scientific visualization, which I should unpack a little bit just to, to make clear. There, I, I tend to think of it as a continuum. In other words, on one end of it is the use of software tools, typically with visual output, to make sense of large data sets, right? So finding the needle in the haystack, too much data, drowning in data, starving for knowledge kind of thing. Let's use scientific visualization to help us with that. And that's a, a powerful use. On the other end of the spectrum, typically is the use of visualization or animation to explain what we understand about science, complicated mechanisms, structures. So it tends to be more the communication and outreach aspect of it. But as I mentioned, I, I actually see it as not two different ends, but rather a continuum. So there are wonderful and interesting things to do in the middle. And I guess I would add to that, that even though we, we create visualizations for a variety of different uh, scientists, businesses, nonprofit organizations, publishers, etc. Um, we are really interested in exploring the power of visualization, not just to create imagery that explains, but because the creation of imagery, the process itself, changes your thinking about yeah. the data that you're using. And so that's kind of a big part of what we've been doing for clients, for ourselves, for the tools we build and for the, the resources that we develop for the community. And let's talk a little bit about your background. You trained originally as a scientist and um, and how did you, you know, get to where you are today? Yeah, so I, you know, to be honest, I've always um, been interested and tried to be involved in science, art, music, uh, whether it was, you know, I, I knew very early on in high school, as early as middle school, to be honest, that I, I absolutely knew I wanted to be a researcher, a scientist, but I was very lucky to have a, an incredible aunt who was an art teacher and who took me to Venice and Florence every, every summer. And it was, it was, it was amazing. Uh, and so I had that in high school. I, when I went, came here from, from Paris, where I grew up to go to undergraduate, uh, same thing. I just kind of had to keep all these irons in the fire. So I, I majored in biology, art history, music. Um, and I think honestly that in the early years of my PhD uh, at, at Harvard Medical School, it was it was the same thing, even though the science was really what I was there to do. And it, it remains the, the core of what interests me. Uh, very early on as a second year graduate student, I started Digizyme, my company almost as I think an outlet, a creative outlet to, yeah. um, you know, to, to, to better communicate scientific research, to help businesses and scientists around us at that time in the, in the Boston medical community, research community, uh, to, to explain complex science to broader audiences. Well, I, you know, and I've, I've looked at some of your work and it's just fabulous. I mean, it's really, um, it's inspirational and 
it's beautiful. Um, and But if we talk a little bit more about that, it's not just a pretty face, right? There's a lot of data behind it. There is. And it's it's funny you say pretty face because it's it's we do still, I, I feel, sometimes are, are fighting against the the just pretty pictures issue. Uh, and, and I'd go even further. It's funny. I've noticed that in some cases, maybe not for a, a more recent generation, but in science, I find that if you're showing imagery that is almost too beautiful and polished, you can tend to get a negative reaction like, you know, this can't be real data because it's too... And so I, I'm not sure exactly where that comes from. I don't know if, if it's, a, you know, kind of a, a Hollywood movie effect where, you know, this this is too, um, too whiz-bang, too, you know, too, too much eye candy. Uh, yeah. I, as you can tell, by the way, I'm speaking about it. I don't believe at all that there's a, it's an either or. I think that you can have things that are absolutely based in real data, but that you can leverage everything we know about design, about cinematography, about all these other fields that are essentially fields that have taught us over decades how to manage, in a sense, the viewer's eye, right? So when you're looking at a visual display, we know a lot about what works, what doesn't, what attracts our eye, what's the, what's the, uh, how do we control visual salience of different elements? And all those rules are critical when you're trying to make either data visualizations that are useful to scientists, or if you're trying to make a, an engaging and, and scientifically accurate animation of you know, a particular process. So- um, Yeah, no, I, I really agree with this. And I, I enjoyed, uh, we had a quick uh, off, off the record uh, discussion and I loved how you said, um, creation of visuals is a process. It's a knowledge synthesis. And as you create an image or representation, you see where the, you know, quote unquote holes are. Can you comment on that a little bit? Sure, sure. It's it's something that, you know, kind of became a realization a bit later, in a sense, in my career, after having worked with many different scientists, both in industry and academia, I would notice something like, you know, I'd, I'd sit down with a scientist, uh, uh, you know, let's say a, a world-renowned scientist who knows everything there is to know about protein X, right? And so we would go about collaborating to create a visualization of how that protein X works. And what I started noticing is that even that expert, when engaged in the process of creating a visualization, in other words, being faced with the design decisions, with understanding where are all the data sources we can bring to the process, their own data was in some cases being shown in a new light, even yeah. to themselves. And so, the, you know, there were like many epiphanies that would come along the, uh, along the way from someone who you would never expect would have, you know, epiphanies that would remain because this is their own data. This is their baby, this, you know. So I, I started to realize that, and, and this is of course not my idea. This is, I think what a lot of us in the fields have experienced the process of creating a visualization changes you because it forces you to do a whole bunch of different things. As an expert, it forces you to externalize your mental model. So things that tend to stay in your mind's eye, you have to put them out there. You have to make them real. You have to communicate them to others. And, and that is one of the benefits. You also have to create something on the screen. And as a result, as you said before, you, the, the missing data become that much more salient. And so when you start to think that way, 
it does shift the, the unique benefits of visualization from just let's make images. Sure, let's make images, but let's also understand that the making of imagery can be a, a really powerful and useful process within the scientific community. In fact, we think of visualization as a place for disparate data types and people with different backgrounds to come and rally around complex problems, whether it's understanding, you know, a disease state like, like type 1 diabetes, or whether it's visualizing the components and how they fit together. Those activities, to me, are best carried out in a powerful visualization environment. And, and that's what we're trying to build with our software tools. I mean, I completely agree with this. And I mean, if you want to even go to case in point with Watson and Crick, I mean, you know, they could have sat around all day and sort of right. like drawn things out, but they had to, they, once they got a real model in place, and of course there was, you know, uh, rudimentary, whatever, but I mean, the, the modeling itself and yeah. looking at it in a 3D space, mm -hmm. um, allowed them to see the holes and to create the model. So That's I think right. that these, what you're talking about is, is critical. And um, I wanted to sort of ask, you know, uh, something a little more like, you know, what, uh, you know, what exactly, how exactly does the technology map to mm -hmm. a better understanding of technology? Can you just sort of talk about that a little bit? Sure. So maybe just to make sure, not only uh, maybe a bit more about how we do what we do and and yes, perhaps where it's going or where we hope it's going. So exactly. Yeah, it's. I mean, the what's interesting. What's been interesting to me is that if you look at the tools that come out of the scientific community itself, there have always been and and there remain very powerful. You know, things like molecular viewers or, or things that let you. Um, open and inspect and, and change and simulate uh, some of the, the data that are coming out of the biophysics, structural biology, and, and other uh, communities. But at the same time, they are very limited in that they typically only let you open up kind of one entity at a time. So let's, you know, let's open up, let, let's, let's visualize insulin, we can rotate it around, we can change the way it looks, you know. But what if you want to try to inspect and, and set the context for what happens, um, you know, after insulin has bound its receptor and all of the downstream events that lead to transcriptional events? What what's the best way to look at that? Yeah, Turns modeling. There it. Is, yeah, there isn't there isn't great software to allow you to do that in the scientific community or born out of the scientific community. On the other end of the spectrum is well, is Hollywood. I mean, is billions of dollars of investment in powerful software um, and tools. And even though the software is amazing, of course, that software is, is never uh, originally intended to go look at insulin. So what we've tried to do, and again, we're not the only ones who have, who have had, you know, who've been doing it this way, is we've tried to kind of marry the two. And, and can we leverage the power, the strength, the flexibility of what the entertainment industry gives us, but customize it, add our own layer of, of code to create software that, that allows us to um, have the scientific accuracy of the data sets born out of the life sciences, but making use of all the wonderful technology that's coming out of the two. And so that to make a long story short, that's been kind of the, the philosophy and in, in the tools that we use not only to do our projects, 
But um, over the past, I guess it's about 10, 15 years now, we've also built our own software called Molecular Maya, which, um, which, which lets us carry out this work and which is now being used also in, in many other um, companies like ourselves or in different places or shows like the, you know, the Griffiths Observatory in LA, their planetarium show, for example, you know, when they, when you see, when you're flying through DNA, that's using our, our software. Uh, and, I love and, that um, show. We've been there several times. <laughs> so I think, um, you know, with the, um, this whole idea of, you know, um, putting this information out there, how let's, I guess, uh, you know, I do want to talk to you about your influences, who, how you got to where you are a little bit. And then I'd like to talk about how you think that interdisciplinary uh, scientists who study type one diabetes might, you know, really benefit from using your tools. But so let's just sort of say, you know, explore like how did you have any influences when you started, you know, your company? Were you looking at, you know, uh, sure. people like Drew Barry, David Goodsall? Yep. And what do you think yep. about uh, what they're doing? Um, we know that USC has World in a Beta Cell. I just would love to hear your impressions about these uh, tools. Sure, sure. Well, I can start with influences. That's in a sense very easy because absolutely there were inspirational um, moments that, um, I mean, it, it wasn't so much the realization that one could operate at the intersection of different fields. I, I always think of that as one of the more interesting and, and powerful place where, where things happen. So, the, so that, that notion in itself, I think, as I mentioned, th there was a little piece of that that I was carrying along with me from, from an earlier age. But honestly, seeing the work of, for example, Drew Berry uh, early on. So Drew is, in my mind, one of the very first people who, again, using the software from the entertainment industry, started to really kind of imbue his animations with some of the some of the things that we don't typically see in animation right so typically in medical animation you'd see a some growth factor gracefully land on top of a receptor and the receptor is awaiting it with open arms because <laughs> molecules know where they're going right of course no drew drew is one of the first at least visually that i could see who would actually depict the random motion of a molecule through space. And that, that growth factor will eventually bind the receptor, but Drew will show it bump into the receptor unproductively five times before it does. And that, that sounds very basic, but it's a fundamental shift in how people think about how events happen at that scale. And that's, to be honest, that's really the core of my interest as an academic, yeah. which is how do we design visualizations to seed better mental models in people, especially in topics that are outside the, the scope of the human senses, of the human intuition, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, I love to talk about gravity because that's a, an easy example. We all know gravity, we all experience gravity at the macro scale. When you're at the molecular scale, it just doesn't matter anymore. It's there, right? But what's much, much more important to understand and depict is, is kind of the, the molasses-like quality that liquids like water now have and that molecules yeah. need to make there. So that idea that at different scales, our human intuition is, is not just not useful anymore, but it gets in the way, it gets you into trouble. So to get back to Drew and influences, I think that 
the more we can explore and depict some of those unique properties that we need to know about in order to think scientifically in, in ways that can lead to better solutions, better drugs, is to try to depict environments and dynamics that are richer in that way and that really respect what we know about the rules, the rules of the game down there, right? So wide open vistas of cells with almost nothing in them, you know, sorry, that's, we, we, these cytoplasms are so crowded that if you put a nano camera in them, you wouldn't see anything because the camera would be covered with stuff. Um, or, or, you know, temporal scale is much harder, right? Yeah. Because temporal scale, you can tell students or yourself, oh, you know, the, the, that I, atom is vibrating at femtoseconds or the side chain is ro rotating every two picoseconds. But wh what does that actually mean, right? That's also outside the scope of our senses. So, but anyway, so I think, you know, back to Drew Berry, to me, that was a, a big deal to see his work. And what was also a big deal is that, of course, these people turn out to be incredible mentors, right? A, yeah. a quick email one day, hoping to get an answer, you get a full page back saying, join us, you can do it too. And, you know, off, off you go and, and learn from the master in a sense. Uh, David Goodsell, I think, has done what Drew Berry has done in, a, in another area. And that is, again, it's, it's, about, it's about gaining better context for how cells and molecules operate at that scale. Uh, one could argue that as a, as a trained cell molecular biologist, we should all know about cytoplasmic crowding and, and, and the effects it has on folding, on stability, et cetera, et cetera. But I'd venture to say that it's through the art of David Goodsell that people now have more of a mental image yeah. that they can work with. And, and what I particularly like about David Goodsell's work is that it's, it's deceptively simple from a technical perspective. These are watercolors, right? I mean, how much more in a sense, low tech can you get? And yet that's totally not the point, right? The point is that the tip of the iceberg, right? Is a, a finished good cell watercolor. The iceberg itself is David's intellect and scientific background in knowing how to source the data, how to make the tough design decisions to, to know what needs to be shown in the painting, whether it's rendered in some 3D VR environment or in his case in watercolor is, is kind of secondary. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you can tell I in the way I, I speak about these people. No, it's fantastic. Inspirations, um, it's fantastic. I would, also, I would also kind of say that to me, it feels like this whole crop of people, um, including the USC uh, beta cell project, are almost like explorers, map makers, you know, um, you know, you're, you're make, you're creating, or you're, you're trying to create maps of the world that is a different world. It's not a world that most people, well, scientists think about it a lot, but it's, it, and even when they're thinking about it, they don't totally know all the parameters and you're trying to fill in those blanks. I think it's absolutely fabulous. I, yeah. uh, what about the beta cell, the USC beta cell? Yeah, well, it's, it's, I think, an example Project. of one of these amazing interdisciplinary projects where people are exploring the, the uses of visualization to, um, and, and I think I, I shouldn't, I, I should preface by saying that I don't know a, a, a whole lot about the project, so I, I don't want to make statements that 
are, are um, where I misunderstand the, the target audience or scope, but based on my understanding of it, it's it's rather broad in that it hopes to not only help eventually lay audiences, perhaps better understand these environments and, and think about them. But I think if I'm not mistaken, there's also a, an intended role for scientists as well. And yeah. so I guess what I would say is that from, from the idea that, you know, that, that the great and, and fun question, of course, is how can we leverage the latest technology to support those types of efforts. And I think that's, you know, that question can never grow old and, and, yeah. and there's a ton to figure out. The only thing that I would add to that, which is, I, it's not a caveat or a, or a warning or something. It's just, to be honest, it's, it's a very kind of stringent questions that we ask ourselves. And so we also ask it of others in a sense and other projects like the, the BSC beta cell. And that is, you know, to what extent do we understand how these new technologies actually benefit the cognition process? And so what I mean by that is, you know, let's take VR for, as an example. Fantastic, very powerful. We, our software tools certainly are, you know, flow into VR and we've done VR ourselves for, um, for clients. So it's a, the technology itself is very exciting and we're familiar with it. But what I'm still kind of waiting to see uh, and hoping to see are studies that tell us more about what are the unique affordances of being in VR. What I think we all know from experience or have seen is that it's, you know, it's very engaging. It's exciting. Uh, if you put someone in VR, you almost get probably a, a you know, a, a boost in, in um, almost like a motivational boost because- a Dopamine surge. Yeah, here we are in this immersive environment and wow, I can look left and right and, you know, but then you can also turn that on its head and say, well, okay, you know, on the one hand, you have uh, 2D, I mean, it can be, it can be, uh, you know, a 3D animation, but it's rendered as a, as a 2D movie. And that's playing by the same rules of cinematography and design that we've learned now from decades of movie making where directors understand how to manage the view of, of, of um, the, the, the attention of the viewer. The, the, the language of film is there for us to leverage and use. Now you put someone in VR and how do you control whether they're looking left or right? If the action is all happening on the right and you're allowing them to look where they want, how do you ensure they're looking at the right thing at the right time? And how does that change what you put in VR? Right? Yeah. So how does it inform kinds, it? Yeah, I mean, those are just the examples of the questions that I think would be very interesting to ask because ultimately the design decisions about how you depict things is, is in my mind always completely tied to at least two things. Who's your target audience? Understanding that target audience. What do they already know or not know? Uh, you know, do they come in with existing misconceptions about what they're about to see? Because sometimes it's not, you know, the tabula rasa you can start with. It's people are bringing in their own baggage in a sense. Right. And what you're showing them has to kind of overcome that. Um, so it's it's not only who's the target audience, um, and it, but it's also defining very clearly, or at least I, I believe, learning objectives. How are you going to right. change them? It's not yeah. just about open exploration. It's what, what does success look like? When someone walks out of this environment, 
what are they able to do differently? How do they think differently? And I think the more we can be very specific about those goals, the more it beneficially feeds back on the design decisions. In the, I, in the case yeah. of the beta cell, yeah, I mean, in the case I of agree beta with that context, totally. I mean, you were talking earlier about like, you know, where are the studies that tell you that the viewers have a better understanding and not just engagement. And I think that has to be built around, you know, the, the offering. And I mean, if we talk about building something, just hypothetically, if we build, or if you, not me, if you, if your team built um, some kind of engagement um, project where you could bring together different um, scientists, interdisciplinary scientists that all could weigh in on maybe the immunological synapse in the context of type one, mm -hmm. or maybe the, you know, now it's looking like macrophages are very, you know, they're changing, uh, basically they change their roles and, and what, what impacts them and, and sort of dissect those things. What, how would you build something like that? If it, and how would you, you've talked to me before uh, about the fact that the structure of the team is everything. So, I mean, if you had a, yeah. if you had sort of, a, you know, this project and you were just putting it into place, how would you build it? What would you do? Yeah, that's, I, and, and the answer is admittedly skewed or biased, of course, to our own experience over the last 20 years. And, and that is that, as you said, digi so fundamentally Digizyme, I, I wanted to build Digizyme as a team of scientist artists. And, and by that, I don't mean a collaborative team of scientists here speaking and working alongside artists here, or sorry, artists and scientists. What I mean is that every person on the team is dually or triply trained in science, art, and programming or teaching. And so, and the reason to me that's such a big deal is that even though, and, and it's saying nothing uh, negative, of course, of the incredible collaborative projects that are born out of multidisciplinary teams. But I have to say that there, there are certain situations when you're tackling complex science where there will, there will always be the barrier of a scientist trying to explain the subject matter to an artist, yeah. but also in the other direction of an artist or a multimedia programmer, for example, who, who really understands what some of these new technologies can do. Or, or the power of storytelling in certain ways, or all, all the things that you learn as a, as a multimedia artist or a 3D animator. Same thing in the other direction. It's difficult to get a scientist to start necessarily thinking in that way. And so the reason I wanted to build the team in, in the way that everyone is, is dually trained is that I think it's shaped the kinds of projects that, that we've been able to do. And so, um, and, and incidentally, I've, I've tried to collaborate with teams and, and certain fields. And I'll, I'll just say the publishing industry uh, in this case has been such, a, such an area where the structure of the teams that lead to, for example, the creation of textbooks is completely yeah. different. And right. I don't think it works anymore. I, again, I don't, I don't mean to be critical, but having, having had the amazing opportunity to uh, create, to write our own textbook with, with E.O. Wilson over a period of two years in, in collaboration with Apple, we were given the freedom to, you know, carte blanche on the content, the design. The only requirement is, you know, it needs to live on an iPad, <laughs> which, was, which was fine. Yeah. But, 
you know, having explored that opportunity and see what you can do with that opportunity, I became much more aware of the problems that you run into when some of the teams that are trying to do similar things are too siloed in their experiences. So, and I would so, agree yeah. with that. I would also offer that I think um, it's not really no one's fault, but because this type one diabetes disease is multifactorial, there's many ways to get type one and there's many parts of it that right. it does lend itself to siloization of scientists. You know, there's the immunologists, they're, they're in their world. They're the, you know, cell biologists, there's the GWAS people, there's yeah. the clinicians, there's the endos. So they're all, they don't have their own meeting. They have, you know, the big ADA meeting, their eclipse there by two, type two, I would argue. But they, so these, I think there is a, there's a huge siloization. And I, to, to be honest, I envision that something, a project like this could be, um, something that would really allow the different voices to be heard, maybe through the lens of what you do. I don't know. I think it's well, really a fascinating idea. You've said it very succinctly. I mean, what you're describing is exactly what we're trying to tackle. Uh, you're describing it as it relates to a specific goal, a disease, and, and um, not exclusively in the academic community. But what you've just described, I see over and over in biopharma. I mean, look, these are, I mean, to, to, to kind of repeat what you said, we're talking about large interdisciplinary teams, often not even geographically, you know, in, in a, in a co-located, right. that bring completely different backgrounds and training. The one thing everyone is aligned on is that they want to solve a common problem. Yeah. But if you were to, um, kind of if, if, if we had a if we had a, a special uh, little imaging tool that allowed us to visualize what is the mental model of a clinician coming to you know so what does a beta cell look like to a clinician what does it look like to a chemist what does it look like to a molecular biologist what does it look like to a patient what you know can we the, the problem is that there is no way to externalize and make more real as a center of discussion what these things look like. And so yeah. for us, visualization is that opportunity. It's, it's more of a, it's an environment which we're trying to, to, to start building where you can not only model, simulate, communicate, but also visualize those models in an iterative way. So it's a, it's a meeting place where people with different backgrounds can all get on the same page, whether that same page is a definition of a disease or the, the modeling of a new therapeutic. Um, and, and so, yeah, so for, yeah, that's- I think uh, Yeah, I would say um, the company Okamzi Razor, uh, Katarina Volz has a company that's directed or targeted towards Parkinson's. And she's trying to build a Parkinson's home where she brings in all these different layers of the science. And then, uh, you know, she's using AI and other tools to try to find connections in these layers. And, you know, again, a multifactorial disease, but it, it kind of brings it to mind that what you're talking about, uh, you're bringing in the visual sense, but again, it's not just uh, a pretty picture. These are digital um, pieces of data in a way. They are. I, I mean, so absolutely, they, they have to be based on data for, for them to make sense. But that, I also want to say that 
you also have to be one has to be careful in that. Well, I'm trying to think of a way to summarize it quickly. It's maybe the the best quote is is one that I love repeating, and that is, you know, um, all models are wrong; some are useful, right? So yeah. it's not just the the big picture where we're going to bring as much data together. Even if even if you're just making literally a picture of insulin, just the molecule, that's an interpretation. <laughs> That's not insulin, right? It's it's back to Magritte. Ceci n'est pas une pipe. You know, this is not a pipe. It's the same thing. Ceci n'est pas une protéine. This is this is a picture of a protein. Okay, that sounds really obvious and, and, and basic, but it's still a reminder that when we talk about scientific accuracy, the minute you're depicting something like a protein, you're making design decisions. True. I don't care what, you know, what software you're using or so all of those questions that go back to who's the audience and what you're trying to communicate about it. It's just as true if you're looking at a single little insulin molecule as if you're trying to build an entire landscape of a beta cell. Uh, not just the landscape, but, you know, let's let's visualize a time course of that landscape as yeah. the beta cell is simulated. Let's et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's the time course of its demise. Well, yeah, I would. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that could be a, a very interesting uh, horror movie. <laughs> oh, it's it's but I think, you know, back to your question, the, the, the key about how would one build it? The very first thing I would think of doing certainly is is reaching out to, you know, colleagues in the field who are able to articulate you know, what are, what are the critical states of that cell that we need to capture? Um, what are the most difficult conceptual parts that the, of the science that, again, we need to capture so that whatever it is that we build, build is based on um, not so much the, you know, the, the engagement, like, wow, wouldn't it be cool if we could fly through the beta cells? Like, well, yeah, but what, why, <laughs> you know, is, is, uh, or, or is there, or I think of, I mean, another place that we, you have to mention, and I'm sure probably most everyone is, I, I hope familiar with it at this point is uh, places like the Allen Cell Institute, where, right. you know, that type of approach towards, again, starting with, with real data, but building these, these, not only an atlas, but, a you know, uh, an, an atlas with an, with an N of, hundreds, thousands of cells so that you can get a sense of not only what a beta cell might look like, but what are, what are the error bars around all of the characteristics of a beta cell? Yeah. Um, and, and then using those as environments within which to launch, at some point, simulations. Again, yeah, it, it that's what of, I'm thinking. You create yeah. a template and then um, different investigators could launch simulations depending on uh, the lens they, the, you know, they're looking at the at the science through. And, and, and what will be, of course, a meaningful, um, I mean, again, you you know, what sometimes when we talk about the word simulations in the context of molecules, people immediately go to, you know, high-end molecular dynamics. Uh, let's simulate, you know, one, one microsecond of time. And those are incredible. And, and we, of course, um, try to visualize those, those trajectories and, and learn from those kind of predictive simulations. But I think as we reach the mesoscale, there's also 
another layer of simulation, which is more kind of coarse grained. As right. long as we're clear about the kinds of questions that we can ask, then I think it's it's still useful. We use simulation all the time, but it's more to sometimes communicate kind of organic behaviors in fields of molecules. They're not predictive simulations. They're not meant to be. We, we would never claim that they are. We're, we don't simulate to hope to get an answer out of the science. We simulate to help us move 2,000 molecules at once. That would be very difficult to animate one at a time. Uh, but, but I think these new environments can certainly serve as um, places where we can seed new kinds of simulations and, and hopefully it can be the meeting place, as we said before, between systems biology and structural biology. Right. And I was going to go back to that. I love that the, um, that quote you gave earlier was the meeting place between systems and structural biology. If someone is listening, a scientist is listening and thinking, this is very cool. You know, I'd like to have a conversation. Um, you know, are you open to that? And uh, can they contact you? How does that work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I... I so first of all, yes, please reach out always. That's that's the easy part of the question. I think the, the harder part to answer, or at least what I, what's been strug, a struggle, and, and not just for us, but I think other people who are interested and, and have kind of focused their career on scientific visualization is models for, well, models for funding, models for understanding how to, to build these projects. Um, and so, to be honest, the way that I've had to operate over the last 20 years or so is that I have DigiSign, I've created DigiSign because that tends to be the engine through which we do real world projects, right? Yeah. So if, um, and including also, you know, building tools and resources, that, that tends to be. On the other hand, when asking fundamental questions about how to design visualizations, like, you know, how much complexity is useful to include in a visualization? Those types of big questions for, for different audiences. Those are questions you can't really tackle as a, you know, as a small business. So those are the things that make more sense to write, uh, you know, an NSF grant and, and do in the context of, a, of an academic institution. So, you know, I, I think that what we've struggled to, to figure out is what is the best way to fund these activities and, and actually part of it is everything we've been talking about today. In other words, I think if people are only thinking of visualization as a picture making activity where you already know what you know and you use these exciting Hollywood tools to make a pretty animation of it, then that's great. It's very powerful. The, those things are used in education. It's the, there's definitely value to them. Uh, but that's a little bit different than what we've been talking about, which is, can we use these tools uh, to fundamentally improve the research process where yeah. scientists will think differently as a result of, uh, of, uh, of being engaged in this process? And that is, as far as I know so far, a tougher nut to crack from a, from a funding uh, argument. So we're, we're working on it, but... Well, I, I, I welcome conversations that goes. Without yeah, saying. that's what I, I, I think the first step would be a conversation and then um, sorting out the details of um, making it uh, fly. But yeah, I, I, I've really enjoyed talking to you, Gail. Amazing. You have an amazing bandwidth of um, both science and art. And I think it's um, 
it really shows in your work. We're going to be showcasing some of your work on our YouTube channel. And we're really excited about that because it's beautiful and also informative. So thank you again for talking to us today. I'll be watching everything that comes out of there, out of DigiSign. Well, thank you so much for the, the opportunity to, to share some of these ideas. Thank you.